Well, good morning. Sure, it's good to see each one this morning. Let me join with Stephen in welcoming each of our guests. We have a number visiting with us this morning, maybe some from the community, as well as those that are visiting, uh, that are traveling and passing through the area. We thank you for coming, and we hope that you find your time spent here at our church family at West Main profitable for you, and that you're edified and uplifted by our fellowship together and by our worship to God and for a little while in our study in the Word of God. If you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to begin there in just a moment as a launching place for our study, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As I was working on this lesson, I was reminded of a story of Dr. Harry Ironside, and some of you may be familiar with that name. He was a great Bible expositor. He wrote a number of commentaries as he lived in the first part of the 20th century. And the story is told about Dr. Ironside that at one point um, in his ministry, he became a little bit concerned that he was lacking humility and had become rather proud of some of the things he'd accomplished. And he was discussing this problem with a friend one day, and his friend suggested that maybe to help him be more humble, what he should do is to get some sandwich boards and put verses on them and walk through the streets of Chicago wearing these sandwich boards and just shouting out Scripture. So Ironside agreed to this venture, and he went out and spent the day walking through the streets of Chicago just carrying these sandwich boards with Scripture on them and, and shouting out these Scripture. And it said that when he returned back to his office and removed the sandwich boards, he quipped to someone, he said, you know what? I bet there's not another man in all Chicago to do what I've done today. Well, such is the challenge of humility <laughs> and the temptation of pride. It's, it's an elusive quality, and once we think we've attained it, we, we've lost it. And maybe the problem sometimes, instead of trying to be humble, we act humble. And in acting humble, we fail to be humble. This could be an apocryphal story. I've heard it for the truth, but I question it a little bit. That a preacher was talking to a friend of his one Monday morning, and his friend said, what did you preach on yesterday? And he said, humility. He said, you know what? I think it's the best lesson I've ever preached. Well, we all, regardless of where we are in our Christian walk, face that challenge. Here at West Main, we are engaging in a theme this year called Love More and Give More. And we are seeking to not only understand what that means from a biblical standpoint, but to apply it to our lives as well. And so we started a few weeks ago engaging a study from 1 Corinthians 13 entitled Love the More Excellent Way. And as we have engaged in that study, we've talked already about what love is and why love does matter the most, as the text tells us. And then we talked about how these slides have really gotten slow since I sent them in the Dropbox. How love is kind, and talked about some applications of love being kind. And then we talked about love does not envy. And this morning we're going to talk about Love is humble. You know, it could be that someone saw this 
theme this morning and thought this would be a way to help me apply what I'm going to preach on. It just now occurred to me, so I'm really going to work at that this morning. So just we'll just work together. Let's listen. We'll take 20 minutes longer than normal. Just kidding. We'll we'll move there. Let's let's talk about what that means that love is humble. And let's go to first Corinthians 13. Read with me, if you will. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether they're prophecies, they will fail. Whether they're tongues, they will cease. Whether their knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Now abide faith, hope, love these three but the greatest of these is love what i want us to do this morning and you're going to see how we're going to pick up the pace as we go through first corinthians 13 from what we've done so far is we're actually going to look at three words that are in this text and i mentioned at the beginning of this study that as we look at first corinthians 13 we see some positive qualities of love and then we see some things that are negative qualities, some things that love does not do. And so I've really taken three negative qualities and lumped them together under a positive heading by saying love is humble. So let's look first of all at these three words. Oh, there we go. Love does not brag. And it depends upon the translation or version of the Bible that you have, what words you use here. Some English translations say love does not parade itself. Love does not boast. Love does not strut. But the whole idea here is love doesn't brag. Love is not pretending like you've accomplished something or you're asking people to act like someone that they're not in terms of showing humility. Love is not flaunting itself in the face of other people. It is not elevating yourself and is not demeaning other people. You know, it's possible for us to engage in actions of love to show other people how loving that we are, and we are conferring on them some kind of a wonderful favor. But love is not like that. Love doesn't do things so it can brag about what it's done. Real love realizes it can offer a gift to the object of its love, and that's good enough. You don't need to talk about it. You don't need to parade around. You don't need to boast about it. You don't need to brag about it. Love is humble. And the text says that love is not arrogant. One version says love is not puffed up. 
Love isn't proud. Love doesn't have a swelled head. The word here literally means to blow up or to blow out or to inflate or to swell. Dr. A.T. Robertson, his word study says, it means to puff oneself out like a pair of bellows. Barclay says love is not inflated with ideas of its own importance. And it is so easy if we're not careful and whatever aspect of life we find ourselves engaging day to day to begin to feel like that we have some air of importance about who we are or what our position is or what our title is or or what we've accomplished or our place in the company where we work or or, or what, whatever it may be. The story is told of a famous SEC football coach that in the offseason took his family on a little trip up to Maine. And they vacationed in a small little area and went to a little town where they were vacationing that had one little small movie theater, and he thought he was so far away that, that no one would know him. And when he went into the theater to see this movie, there were just a, a handful of people. You could hardly count them on two hands. And as he walked in, the people looked up and they started applauding. He sat down to his wife and he said, isn't that something? I can't go anywhere people recognize me. I can't believe all the way up here in Maine, this little town, the people know who I am. A fellow came over to him in just a minute and leaned over. And he said, thank you so much for coming. The coach looked up, you know, and, he's, and then the guy said, you know, they won't run the movie unless we have 10 people come, and you're the 10th person that's come in. <laughs> well, you know how quickly we are inflated and deflated about our relative importance in life. Well, I guess he was important in one way. They got to see the movie because he and his wife came in. Love is not puffed up. Love is not arrogant. Love doesn't think it's more important than other people. You see, the problem is many times pride doesn't want to serve. But pride wants to be served. Prideful people too often think they live by a different set of rules. The great Napoleon once said, I'm not like other men. The laws of mortality do not apply to me. <laughs> oh, really? Well, it turned out that they did. There was a gospel preacher when I first started preaching. Some of you older people may know the name Franklin Puckett. He was a wonderful man of God, and I was fortunate as a young fellow to hear him preach a couple times and just to, to, to meet him, meet him and a great preacher. But someone made this comment in a biography by Franklin Puckett. They said he was a great man, but he didn't know it. What a great tribute to Franklin Puckett to be a great person and not know it. Love is humble. It doesn't brag. It is not arrogant. And it is not self-seeking. The text says love doesn't seek its own. One version translates this, love does not pursue selfish advantage. In other words, love is not seeking its own interest. Love doesn't insist upon its own rights. You see, some people are always thinking of their rights. And then there are other people that are thinking about their responsibilities. How many problems in relationships, whether it's in churches 
or whether it's in marriages or in, in families or in communities or in businesses, arise because in relationships that someone feels neglected, they feel overlooked, they feel that they have not been accorded the, deserve, the respect they deserve, and they are seeking something, they are self-seeking in that relationship, and then problems arise. These three negative qualities of which Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 13 are flipped into a positive quality. They say, love is humble, doesn't brag, not arrogant, and is not self-seeking. Now, let's look at this from the standpoint of Jesus. Because Jesus is our perfect example. And I think we can look at the life of Christ and see humility exemplified in Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. And in this great book, actually, and certainly in this chapter, that Paul begins in the first four verses talking about how that in the church family and a relationship in Christ that we can have a oneness together as we exercise humility. In verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem be others better than himself. Let each of you look out only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. That speaks to the issue of humility. And so then in verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Think for a moment here about how humility is exemplified in so many ways in the life of Christ. In fact, just start with his birth. You look at the birth of Jesus as recorded in the Bible. Here is majesty in the midst of the mundane. Born in a manger with cattle and the sweat and the blood and the tears and the manure and their divinity enters the world in an unsuspecting little town born to a teenage girl. His birth was a lowly one. It came without great fanfare. And then we think about his childhood. He lived in the town of Nazareth, a little town that was poor and scorned. In fact, you remember when Nathaniel in John 1, 46 asked Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And when you read the commentators that at Nazareth was this little village of about 3,000 people, and, and the Jews looked down on it with disdain. Now, Texas is so great, we may not have any towns in Texas that have disdain. But there may be some place that you look on as a, as a little town that not much great has come out of there. I don't know. Most places have that. That's why Nazareth was. Not much good had come out of there. That it was, that it was looked down upon. In fact, it had a bad reputation. It was looked upon as a people that were crude and they, they were backward. But that's where the Son of God grew up. And then he comes to manhood. And what does he do in manhood? He works as a carpenter. 
and menial common labor. You know the pictures of Jesus that show this this soft-skinned, fair kind of an individual. Sometimes they're almost effeminate looking, the paintings and pictures. I tell you, I don't picture Jesus like that at all. When I read what little the prophets say about him, I, I picture, picture someone that was not particularly handsome, and I picture someone that was rugged, and if he worked in the carpenter shop, I imagine he got splinters in his hands, and his hands were probably rough and calloused, and he, he was lifting things, working things. He probably had muscles. I don't know that, don't know that, but I know he worked as a carpenter. A hard job, a menial job. He didn't go to the Jewish schools. That when he came on the scene and preaching, the, the, the religious leaders were surprised. He didn't go to our schools. He didn't sit at the feet of the great rabbis. And so by age 30, he had not distinguished himself in anyone's eyes or achieved any level of success or, or greatness by the world's standards or by Jewish standards as he grew into manhood. And then we look at his ministry. He had no home. He had no palace. He had no office. What did he do? He ran around with publicans and sinners and ate with them. His apostles, his messengers, were common, everyday, ordinary, smelly fishermen and tax collectors and zealots that called for the overthrow of the Roman Empire. And then a few women, some of whom possibly had a bad reputation in society, that followed him around from place to place, and that was his ministry. And then we look at his death, a lowly and despicable and despised death, the death that was reserved for the dregs of society. And so when it says in the text here in Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross, that Jesus becomes the ultimate example of humility how he was born and how he lived and how he died now the apostle paul is not saying that we have to live exactly that way but he is saying we have to think that way let this attitude be in you which was also in christ jesus to be humble to be lowly of mind to be like christ and so let's think in the last section of the lesson about some applications. I simply call these four habits of humility that can help us as we seek to throw off the shackles of pride that often bind us and become humble as the Lord would have us to be humble. First of all, I would suggest to give preference to other people. Humility does not have to have first place or even, even a prominent place. Humility, it certainly is not prideful or boasting or self-seeking. It is looking to put others ahead of themselves. In Romans chapter 10, or 12, and in verse 10, that we're told to be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. To give preference to one another and to do it in honor? To esteem other people? Yeah. To allowing someone else to go ahead of you? To allow a, another individual 
to be honored in place of you? To receive a place of prominence? To take a spot that you might have enjoyed? Yes. That is humility, giving preference to other people. I know we've all been in the situation in talking with someone and sharing stories that some people listen to what you have to say and other people wait their turn to talk. Of course, none of us have ever been there, right? But we have known people like that. There is a great story that comes out of England a number of years ago of the great two great prime ministers in Great Britain's history, William Gladstone and Benjamin Disraeli. And the story is told that a young lady had dinner with them on successive nights. And she was later asked by reporters her impression of the two men. And here's what she said. When I left the dining room after sitting next to Mr. Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest man in England. But after sitting next to Mr. Disraeli, I thought I was the cleverest woman in England. And there suggested the difference between the two men and in their attitude and giving preference to other people. Secondly, let me suggest that we practice learning from others. A couple of passages from the Proverbs that might help us with that a little bit. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 12. The wise man said, conceited people do not like to be corrected. They never ask for advice. Humble people do, but conceited people don't, arrogant people don't. Or how about in Proverbs 15 and verse 32, if you reject criticism, you only harm yourself. But if you listen to, <laughs> that should be correction, ironic that I would make a mistake on the word correct. But if you listen to correction, you grow in understanding. And so the question I need to ask myself, am I open to suggestions? Am I open to criticism? Am I open to correction? Am I willing to learn from other people? Am I teachable? Am I willing to listen? Am I willing to grow? Am I willing to learn? It was John Wooden that said that it's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. I feel like the fellow that once said when I was a young pre preacher, he said, I knew all the answers. And he said, now I don't even know all the questions. And I'm getting there more and more all the time. Leaders are learners. And the moment you stop learning, you stop leading. Well, then the third thing is to admit when we are wrong. You know, a lot of times we try to sugarcoat things and gloss them over and not really admit the truth. And we don't even, we don't even like to admit it when we know we've made a mistake. How many times have you heard someone, I've even heard this sometimes in a public confession in days, and you don't hear this quite so much anymore when people will get up and make their own confession. And i never forget as a young preacher, a guy came forward, he got up, and he said, if I've sinned, well, when we, when we start with that word if, you know, we're already suggesting the possibility I haven't done anything wrong. Now, if I have, if you think I have, here's, I'm sorry. Or, or I like this one sometimes. We're talking to someone, 
And they say, well, you know what, Ken? I know I was wrong, but. Now, as soon as you hear the word but, you know what's about to happen. That we're about to make an excuse. And we're about to try to minimize the fact and get away from the fact that we've admitted that we're wrong. What if we could just stop and not use that little three-letter word and just say, I know I was wrong, period. I goofed up. I made a mistake. I was wrong. But it's hard. And a lack of humility, a pride creeps in that it's just hard to stop there without some disclaimer. You know, men, just a little parenthetical thought here for you. I've kind of, I, I start to say I've learned this. Actually, it's better to say I'm learning this. I'm still, I'm still a work in progress on this. But I have found that when I make a mistake with my wife, that she much prefers I just admit that instead of trying to offer this explanation of why I did it or why I said it or what led up to it. She calls it trying to justify yourself. And I say, well, no, I'm just trying to explain, honey. But she would much rather I just say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. But isn't it, isn't it our pride a little bit that we don't want to admit that totally and to give some explanation? And so it's better just to say that we're wrong. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. When love is humble, you see, love does that. Or how about Proverbs 28 and 13? A man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful, but if he confesses, forsakes them, he gets another chance. Well, let me suggest finally, the fourth habit of humility is to surrender your plans to God. Surrender your plans to God. You see, too often times that we try to make plans without even thinking about God or consulting God because we think that we're, we can just accomplish what we want to accomplish with or without him. And that's not true. Doesn't James warn us about that in James chapter 4? Is that four or five? I think that's five. I think I got a mistake there. Isn't this interesting? I've already had at least two mistakes in this lesson and maybe more. I admit it. <laughs> that shows that Norma Jean's been away and didn't prove my PowerPoint. That's only four mistakes. Okay, someone's keeping score. Thank you very much. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into this city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're amidst that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. You see, it is in James 4, I'm almost positive this, and it may be verses 6 and 7, where God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God hates pride. God hates pride. Practice surrendering your plans to God. Humility is giving up control of your life and turning it all over 
to the Lord. As I said in the beginning, love is humble. It doesn't just act humble. It is humble. And you see, we don't have to walk around the sandwich board <laughs> in the streets of Dallas to, to prove our humility. And we don't have to pretend. Sometimes we think we're being humble when we try to deny the obvious. I mean, for me to say I'm 5'7", when I'm 6'7", it's not being humble. Well, Ken is so humble, he, he only says he's 5'. Well, that's ridiculous. That's not even true. And so, it's not denying the obvious in our lives, but it's appreciating God's blessings and being grateful and giving Him the glory and honoring Him and giving Him thanks and being humble. And so, it says... In 1 Peter 5, God resists the proud, but give grace to the humble. Therefore, exalt yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. That, ladies and gentlemen, may be the antidote. Just to cast our care upon God. Because when we do that, we don't have to worry about what others think or how they see us or what our place is or our success or our prominence, our position. We just cast ourselves upon the Lord and he will exalt us when in due time. And he will. You sure have listened good. I appreciate it. And I hope that all of us can work to apply this needed principle of love from 1 Corinthians 13. As we close this morning, we sing a song of invitation and encouragement. You may have come this morning with a desire to put on the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, repentance, and baptism. We'd love to assist you in that obedience this morning and help you become a child of God and be born again into his family. It may be that you owe a duty to the Lord in some way and you would come desiring the prayers of the church family here. And we'd be glad to lift you before God's throne and pray with you and for you and uh, help you in your Christian walk to become the, what God would have us to be. We can serve you. Would you come as we stand and while we sing?